Uh, I'd like to read through verse 10. I'm really going to just concentrate on the first nine verses this morning in the message. Uh, but J- Matthew chapter 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able, to, is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist is referred to by Matthew in this same book as the greatest man who ever lived. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11 says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, I think most of us in here know at least some things about John the Baptist, but there are several things about his life that would make him great. Uh, John was obedient to the call of God in his life to be a prophet. Uh, John was filled with the Spirit of God as he preached. John was self-controlled. He was humble. He proclaimed God's message without apology. And he led many people to the Lord. And as you take a look at those things about his life, I think we could also compare ourselves to him in the same way. Do we possess those characteristics that John had? Are we obedient to the call of God in our life? When God speaks to us through his word, do we obey? Are we humble? Do we proclaim the message of God? Do we lead people to the Lord, to Jesus Christ? Those are the things that made John great. And I think those are the things that would make us great in the kingdom of God as well. And in fact, if you look at the end of that verse in Matthew 11, 11, it says the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so on the other side of the cross, when we come to Jesus Christ through faith, we can possess qualities that even surpass that of John the Baptist when God works in your life and when we are, are living for the Lord uh, the fruit of the Spirit. So at this point, anyway, in Matthew chapter 3, we see John fulfilling the prophecy. It says in verse 1 that he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, uh, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this one, he says, is referred to in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied that there would be one who came to announce the coming of the king. And this fits in perfectly with the purpose of the book of Matthew. Matthew wrote this book particularly to show Jesus Christ as king, as Messiah. And so as John uh, was preaching repent, uh, repentance uh, for, the com- for the king is coming, the kingdom is at hand, it fits in very well with what Matthew was trying to do with this book. 
And Christ was coming not to just be king of Israel in a political sense, but he was coming to be the king over God's entire kingdom, which includes all the peoples of the world, including you and I. John's was a ministry of preparation. Um, The king was coming, and it was time for people to repent. Uh, The people in Israel at this point needed their hearts to be radically changed. They had drifted from the law of God. They had drifted from God personally. And John's call was for repentance. And this was a stern rebuke to Israel about their shallow religion that uh, that they had at the time. And in essence, he was telling them that they weren't ready. Jesus was coming, but you are not ready. You need to make yourselves ready. Prepare uh, for the king. And that they were lost in their sin. They needed to repent. And they even needed to be baptized. Now, this probably was disturbing to most of the Jews that were there because the Jews saw themselves as the sons of God. They saw themselves as the chosen ones of God, the keepers of the law, uh, the keepers of God's truth. And so for somebody to come and say, you need to repent, probably was a shot between the eyes, uh, much like it would be for anybody that we told today. If you walk down the street or go to the mall this afternoon and you just told somebody randomly, you need to repent of your sin. <laughs> what? I need to repent? I don't need to repent. And that's probably likely the reaction you would get from most people. What have I done? I don't need to repent of my sin. And Israel was in a very similar situation. And in fact, they probably, more than any other people in the world, had reason to believe that they were okay because of their connection with God's law and God himself. But baptism itself, the baptism that John was asking them to be uh, involved with, you don't see a lot of uh, reference to or any reference to baptism in the Old Testament. And then when you come to the New Testament, here's John the Baptist coming and baptizing people. And, and we see baptism, obviously, later on in the book of Acts. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. What was this baptism that John was asking them to do? Well, you have to go back in history just a little bit uh, to understand it. But the, the short of it is that if you were a Gentile outside of the nation of Israel and you wanted to convert to Judaism, you had to be baptized. You had to go through a ritual, you had to go to the priests, you had to convert, and part of that conversion was literally an outside washing which was representative of what was going on inside. So much of the truth of believer's baptism is carried um, from the baptism that we see here. So when a Gentile wanted to come into Israel, they would come to the leaders of Israel and they would go through the ceremonial washing and they would literally put them in the water and would baptize them. And so the Jews knew what baptism was. They knew what it represented. They knew that it represented somebody who needed to be converted and somebody who needed to be cleaned up in order to come in. So those who were outside needed to be baptized in order to get in. And here John was telling those who thought they were already in, you need to be baptized. So again, this idea of repentance and baptism, they knew what it was. But in in essence, he was saying, you're no better off than a Gentile in your current state and you need to repent. How were the people responding to this? Well, as a whole, if you look down in verse 5, who was coming out? The people from Jerusalem. John was out in the wilderness, not far from Jerusalem, uh, but he was at the Jordan River, away from the city, away from where people lived. And it says the people in Jerusalem were coming out to see him. The people in all Judea, which were the regions around Judea, were coming out to see him. The regions around the Jordan River were coming out to see him. So there were crowds of people. They were listening to what John was saying, 
And what does it say about them in verse 6? They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their king. And so as a whole, I would say that the crowd was receiving what he was saying and the crowd was repenting. They were being baptized. And so I'd say this this represents a, a godly remnant that was still in Israel and they were coming, they were listening and they were they were hearing what John was saying and they were being baptized. Uh, if you flip over to Acts 19 for a moment. Verse 4. Um, actually, back up to verse 1 and get a little bit of the context. It says, It came about that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. So they were there. Here was an example of a couple of people who had come, listened to John's preaching, and were baptized in the Jordan River by John. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. So here's an example of somebody who came, they recognized that they needed to prepare for the king, and they were baptized by John. Now, we don't have a whole lot in the New Testament that was written by John. But here we get a little glimpse into his preaching and his message. And really what I want to get to this morning is what he was saying and the words that he used and and, uh, hopefully help us to come to a clearer understanding of what true repentance is really all about. I'd like to talk to you about three things this morning. One was the real audience. As you look at this passage, you see all the people coming from Jerusalem. You see all the people coming from Judea and and the regions of Jordan all about But then John directs his attention to a specific group of people, and he preaches directly to them. And while everybody was there and listening to him, he was really preaching to this select group, and we'll we'll talk about that. The second thing I would call the rigorous attack. He doesn't just welcome them with open arms, but he lays it right on the line with this group of people that he's talking to. And he attacks their soul, he attacks their spirit, he attacks their reason for being there in the first place, and he doesn't hold back at all. And then the third thing I've called the right answer. What should they have been there for? And, and what should they do? And therefore, what should we do in our own lives when it comes to repentance? So first, the real audience. Who was John preaching to here? Well, we've already seen uh, what's going on around. The people from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas were coming. They had gathered. There was a multitude in the wilderness listening to this man who was a little odd. Uh, he had the... He was living by himself in the wilderness, wearing weird clothes, eating weird food, and preaching. And there was a crowd of people who had come and were listening to what he was saying. And we've seen that most of them that were there were being baptized for the confession and were confessing their sins. But not everybody in the crowd was like that. And like I said, while everybody in the crowd was listening to what John was saying, he was directing his comments to a very, very specific group. If you go back to verse 5 again, Jerusalem was going out to him, Judea and all the district around the Jordan. 
And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of who? The Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, and we'll stop right there. So, so his audience that he is choosing to speak to right here is not the crowd in general, but it's specific to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, who were they? Who were the Pharisees? Who were the Sadducees? Again, when you go to the Old Testament, you don't see these groups anywhere. All of a sudden, you come to Matthew, and boom, here they are, as if they had always existed. And once again, we have to go back a little bit into history to see where these people came from and what they believed. And when you do, you get a little glimpse as to why John was so strong with them. There were really three groups in Israel that were the religious leaders of the day. One was the Pharisees. We're all familiar with at least their name. The other that we're going to look at this morning was the Sadducees. And then there was a third group called the Essenes or the Scribes. And we're not going to talk so much about them today. They were, uh, the scribes were more of a, a totally separatistic group. Uh, God used them to copy much of the scripture. The Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, many of you who are familiar with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, it was the Essenes or the scribes that copied those scrolls and put them in that cave uh, so many years ago. Um, they were kind of a group unto themselves. They didn't mingle with uh, society very much. Um, but let's move on to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were successors to a group called the Hasidim, H-A-S-I-D-I-M. Um, the Hasidim, it, the word itself in the Hebrew means pious or separated. And um, they were obviously a very, very religious group. They were concerned about what other people thought about them, and they lived a very pious and a very religious style of life. At the end of the Old Testament, um, we find the book of Malachi. At the beginning of the New Testament, we find the book of Matthew. Between the history of Malachi and Matthew, there are 400 years that passed where there was no direct revelation from God. However, there was a history recorded we find those in the apocryphal books, and you can learn a lot about what happened in the interim period as you read those books and other books as well that record the history for us. During those 400 years, Israel was ruled by Greece. Much of the Greek culture that's referenced in the New Testament, the fact that the New Testament was even written in Greek, was because Greece was ruling in Israel at the time. And it was during this time you may have heard of a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a ruthless killer, a ruthless leader from Greece who had come into Jerusalem, killed tens and thousands of people, uh, desecrated the temple. We don't know exactly with what. The thought is that he probably brought, brought a pig or some other unclean animal into the temple and sacrificed it on purpose just to, um, just to show that he could do it. Uh, he made the religious life in Israel intolerable. People were not allowed to sacrifice. They were not allowed to go to the temple. And he basically tried to obliterate uh, the religious life of those in Israel. And during that time, there was a group called the Maccabees that arose and, re and revolted against Greece and against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and all that was happening in Jerusalem. Now, the Hasidim, which was a very pious religious group in the time, joined the revolt because they were so concerned about the religious life in Israel that they, they joined and wanted to fight against Greece and, and uh, 
kicked them out. They didn't want the Greek way of life coming in and destroying the way of life in Israel. Over time, the Maccabean revolt turned more political. And it wasn't so much that they wanted the Greeks out because of religious reasons. They wanted them out for political reasons. And when that happened, the Hasidim backed out of the revolt, stopped fighting. And it was this group from which we get the Pharisees. The Pharisees were extreme, religious, pious, super spiritual, separated people. That's what they were concerned about. And we know from the New Testament that they separated from everyone. They separated from the heathen. They separated from the Gentiles. They separated from the tax collectors. They separated themselves from the sinners. We see them rebuking Jesus in the New Testament for sitting down with sinners and sitting down with tax collectors. How can you do that, they would say, because they themselves had lived a life of separatism, super spiritual. They even separated from fellow Jews who they believed didn't interpret the law correctly. You find that in John chapter 7, verse 49, if you want to look it up. By the time that Christ arrives on the scene, and we find this passage in the book of Matthew where John the Baptist is preaching, the Pharisees had no life left in them. What began as a religious life and a life that was dedicated to God became just a shell on the outside. It was all show. There was, there was nothing of true spirituality within them. Their entire lives were lived to try to show people externally that they were super spiritual, that they were pious, and they enjoyed the praises of men. They enjoyed wearing clothes that people would recognize. Oh, there goes a Pharisee. They had bells that they would put around the bottom of their robes. So as they walked through the streets, people would know, here comes a Pharisee. When they prayed, and a little later in the book of Matthew, when Jesus was preaching uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the Pharisees who loved to pray on the street corners with hands held high, with their phylacteries, which were little boxes with leather straps that they would wrap around their arm and a box that they would wrap around their head for show that had a little piece of scripture inside it. And they loved people to see them and to acknowledge them that they were religious. They were super spiritual. But in reality, there was nothing left inside them. They had become experts in self-righteousness. And like I said, they even blasted Jesus while he was here for mingling with the sinners, mingling with the tax collectors. They were fanatical. They had lost all their patriotism nationally, but they had retained a sort of spiritual influence over the people that they enjoyed and that the people feared. They lorded it over the people. And people not only respected them, but feared them when they came down the road. They didn't want to displease the Pharisees. This group, the Pharisees, was the only group that Jesus continually condemned. If you look at all the other groups in Israel, Jesus forgave the woman that was caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Jesus forgave the tax collector who came to him asking for mercy. But the Pharisees themselves bore the brunt of Jesus' criticism all the way through. And when we get to Matthew chapter 23, we'll read a little bit of that a little bit uh, later in the sermon. He just, bam, 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 hit them, hit them, hit them because of their hypocrisy. And because they were trying to show to the, to the world that they were spiritual when they really were not. So that's the Pharisees. The Sadducees were another group in Israel 
who had nothing to do with the Pharisees. They were a completely different group. And sometimes we don't see that disconnect because when we see them, oftentimes they're referenced together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here, John even lumps them together kind of in the same group, even though they were totally separate from one another. The Sadducees were wealthy elitists. They loved to hobnob with kings and those in authority, governors. They were at all the political rallies. Um, They were religious in a sense, but their religion was far different than the Pharisees. Their religion was not so much a religion of legalistic um, conformity to a a certain way of life. Their religion was more um, of their own accord, I would say, put it that way. They were free thinkers, and they believed that whatever they thought or whatever anybody thought was okay. There is no resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. And so whatever they did, in order to try to please God, they did it for the here and now. And so if they were doing anything in their lives to, to try to be religious or to, to please God in any way, the blessing that was going to come from God was going to come right now. And so because of that, their lifestyle was way different than the Pharisees. They, they embraced the Greek culture. They embraced the Roman culture when the Romans came in and took over in Israel. Um, they were compromisers. Uh, they had no problem adopting even the sinful ways of the Greeks and Romans as long as it benefited them. Um, they extorted money, and they were good at it. When people came into Israel to sacrifice at the temple, they came from multiple places, different countries, and, and they had to exchange their money. Just as if you were traveling into another country, you would have to exchange dollars into wherever you were going. Well, they were the ones that were there to exchange the money, and they, and they charged exorbitant exchange rates and ripped people off in order to get the money. And then they would set themselves up at the temple and would sell the animals that people wanted to buy for the sacrifice. And again, they would charge exorbitant prices for the animals. When Jesus came into the temple and tipped over the, ta- the tables of the money changers, this was the Sadducees. This was them. Um, they had also seized control of the priesthood. When you see in the New Testament, the hi- or in the Gospels, the high priest, the priesthood, this was the Sadducees. Annas, Caiaphas, some of the names that you'll be familiar with, especially during the betrayal and the end of Jesus' life, these were Sadducees. Wealthy, influential, political, in with Rome, but few in number. Very elite group. And honestly, the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with the Sadducees. Sadducees wanted nothing to do with the Pharisees. They had completely different philosophies, completely different motives, and came at life from completely different directions. And in fact, there were theological, major theological differences between the two groups. I mentioned one already. The Pharisees believed in an afterlife. They believed in the resurrection. All of the stuff that they were doing, they were doing so that God would bless them later. They said no to everything now so that God would say yes to them in heaven. And they would have God wrapped around their little finger because of all the stuff that they were doing. God, you have to bless me because look at what I did. I sacrificed so much in this life. The the, uh, Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection at all. Everything was here and now, so their lifestyle really didn't matter. Um, Turn to Acts chapter 23 just for a moment. Verse 6. Paul knew the difference between the two and actually got them arguing in this passage. 
in Acts 23, verse 6. Paul is before the council. And he says he perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. And Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, which he was, a son of the Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And you can hear all the, probably the Pharisees in the background just cheering, getting up, Go, Paul! Yes, he's, he's, he's claiming to be one of us. And as he said this, he knew that this was going to happen. There arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. There are no angels. There are no spirits. There is no afterlife in that sense. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. And there arose a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and began to argue heatedly saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. And as a great dissension was developing, the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them and ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. And so just an example here of the dissension between the two groups. As far as eternal life goes, Pharisees believed there was. Sadducees didn't believe there was at all. They had a differing view on the scriptures. The Pharisees believed that the Old Testament was the revelation of God, but you know what they did to that, right? They added a ton of laws, rules, codes to the Scriptures that they imposed on people. And if we went through, if, if, you start, uh, if we started to look at them, you'd be rolling in the aisles laughing at some of these things that they imposed. They were so picky and so strict but this is what they believed. And the stricter they were, the more that, the closer that they thought they were to God. So Old Testament, in addition to oral tradition, was what they believed was, was true. We find that today, right? The Roman Catholic Church. You have the scripture, but you also have oral tradition. The, the uh, Sadducees also believed in the Old Testament, but really the only part of the Old Testament that they cared about was Moses' books, the first five books of the Bible. So what brings these two groups together today in the book of Matthew, chapter 3? Both of these groups leave the city and send representatives out to see John. The only thing that these two groups really had in common was their hatred for Jesus Christ. In that, they were united. They saw Jesus as a threat. They saw Jesus, the Pharisees saw Jesus as a religious threat. Jesus came and he preached. He preached right down to the, to the nitty-gritty of, the, of a person's heart. You read through the Sermon on the Mount, and it was bam, bam, bam. Je- Jesus was talking about things that we all can relate to. Talked about lying, talked about lust, talked about sins that we all know we commit on the inside. And, and Jesus knew. And so the Pharisees heard him preaching. They knew that he was hitting home. He knew that people were listening to him and they were afraid that he was going to take all these people away and that their influence would go out the door. So they saw Jesus as a threat. Jesus was also coming and proclaimed himself as the king. He's the Messiah. And so the Sadducees saw him as a political threat. If Jesus is truly setting himself up as king in Israel, then, then 
who are we? Those who had the political control. And so both of them, for different reasons, saw Jesus as a threat. But even more than that, there's, there's something else that draws these two groups together. And this is what John gets to in Matthew 3. They had this in common. Both groups, when you stop and take a look at what they believed about salvation, were, were a works-oriented salvation. The Pharisees believed that you had to separate yourself. You had to conform to a set of laws. You had to conform to a set of rules, a set of codes. And if you did this, and you did this religiously, and you did this every day, and, you, and the more you pour your heart into it, that is what's going to get you into God's grace and God's favor. It's work. It's you separating yourself from something else and doing all of this. The Sadducees was also a works system. They believed that what they thought, what they believed, was going to save them in the here and now and to receive that to receive that blessing. And so with the Pharisees, you work hard now to receive blessing later. With the Sadducees, you work hard now to receive the blessing now. Either way, it was hard work. They were trusting and resting in their own works to save them. And this is just the opposite of what John the Baptist was preaching. John the Baptist was saying, you cannot save yourselves. All of you are full of sin and you need to repent. And it's God who will save you. Um, Jesus himself recognized that they were radically opposed to the message of salvation that he was preaching, um, salvation by grace through faith. Turn to Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, there is just a litany of attack by Jesus against the Pharisees. In fact, before we read this in Matthew 16, 16, you don't have to or 16, 6, you don't need to turn there, but Jesus said, Watch out for the leaven of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out for the leaven. Leaven we know is a foreign substance that's going to come in and destroy what's going on. It's going to ruin it. And whatever the Pharisees and Sadducees were preaching, it was going to disrupt and it was opposed to the message that Jesus was preaching. In Matthew 23, look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. They were good at the picky things. They would the, the, the herbs that Jesus mentions here were seeds. They were tiny little seeds. And so if they had ten seeds, they would take one seed out of the ten and they would tithe it. Tiny little little picky things that they were involved in. And this is what they thought was going to get them to heaven. But Jesus says, no, it's not that. You neglected the weightier things. Mercy and justice. The things that should have been a part of your life, you have neglected. So Jesus recognizes that the scribes or the uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had this works system where people, they were being taught to rely upon themselves in order to get saved. And there is so much of that going on today. It's everywhere. Follow your heart. Do what you think is right. There are a lot of ways to God. If you want to believe in God, believe in God. If you don't want to believe in God, don't believe in God. What you think is right. So it's a postmodern world that we live in where truth is not acknowledged anymore but they saw through it it existed then it exists now 
And John, we go back to Matthew chapter 3, lumps them together. If you look in verse 7, he says, but when he saw many of, and the construction of the Greek here really shows that he does lump them together. There's one article, the, and there's two nouns, Pharisees and Sadducees. So it's as if John was looking at them as one group. Even though they were so philosophically divided, there was something about them that, that John saw in both groups that he was about to address. And it was this very thing. Either salvation is a work of God or it is a work of man. You can't have it both ways. It can't be both. Either salvation is by human achievement or it's by divine accomplishment. Either we can earn our way to salvation or God has paid our way to salvation. And it's clear from the passage that both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were on the side of human achievement. They believed that they could work their way to God. So if that was true, what were they doing out in the wilderness with John? Why were they there? You think they were there to be baptized? No. They didn't think they needed to be baptized. They didn't need to repent. They had it all together. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees knew in their own hearts that they were fine with God. So what brought them out to see John in the wilderness? And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, Whoa! You're going to hear it in a second. What do you think the Pharisees and the Sadducees were out for? Why were they there? You think they were there to listen to John? You think they were there because they had a humble heart and they knew that they needed to repent of their own sin? You think they were there for baptism? No. Maybe they were there just out of curiosity. Here's somebody new that had popped up and was preaching, and there was a huge crowd, and they were just curious, and so they went out to see what this was all about. Maybe they were there because of the numbers of people. They were just afraid that there were so many people going out that you know, if they didn't go out and see what was going on, they were going to get left behind. They were going to get left out of whatever was going on. Maybe it was just peer pressure that brought them out. Maybe they were afraid that they would lose their influence with the people. If this man John really was a good preacher and he was telling the people something and they started following him, hey, we would lose our influence with the people that we have influence over now. Maybe they wanted to infiltrate and take over the movement. Here's something a lot of people are going, we're going to get in at the ground level and we're going to, we're going to rise right to the top of this thing and, and keep it going. I don't know why they were there. Probably one of those reasons or a combination of some of those reasons. But in any case, here they are. They come walking. John sees them. And what do you think they would expect to hear? Not what they heard. I think they might have expected to hear something like, here come our esteemed leaders. Everybody bow down. Here's a Pharisee. Welcome him in. Here's a Sadducee. Why don't you give him a place right up in front here so that they can hear and they can, they can see. You brood of vipers. You offspring of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Yikes. I've read that many, many times, and obviously, I think when you read it, when I read it, we get the point, you know, that John saw through something that, that, that was going on there. But why did he call them a brood of vipers? Why did he call them the offspring of snakes? In this phrase, brood of vipers, he exposes their sin in one fell swoop. You know what a viper is? 
A viper is a small desert snake. It's a very deceptive animal. It will lie still and look like a stick or a twig in a pile of sticks until something is close enough that it can strike, and then it will, without warning, strike and latch on and sink its teeth into whatever it's sinking its teeth into and then pump venom into it. It does nothing but kill. That's what it's, that's what it's designed for. Um, keep your finger here and turn to Acts 28, verse 3. We see one of these desert vipers uh, in a story with Paul, and that's exactly what happened. Acts 28, verse 3. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, he was going to light a fire. He gathered a bundle of sticks. He laid them on the fire. A viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. So there it is. It's a tiny snake, probably brown, looks like a stick. And it waits. And without... The person who's near it suspecting it will strike fast and try to poison him. These groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were snakes. They were hypocrites. They were deceivers. And just like a snake who would look like something else, they were disguising themselves to be something that they really weren't. They were telling people that they were something that they really weren't. Passing themselves off as harmless They were actually poisoning the entire nation with what they were saying, what they were teaching, and how they were living. And John recognized what was going on here. The word brood means offspring. So John was not only talking about them, but he was talking about the people who came before them, condemning the sins of those who had started this whole religion in the first place. And if you stop and think, what was he really saying? Jesus said it in John chapter 8 the same way. These guys were hypocrites, liars, and they were poisoning people with with their false teaching. Who is the ultimate deceiver? Who is the ultimate liar? Who was a liar from the beginning? What form did Satan take in the garden? A snake? A serpent? He's uh, the great dragon in the book of Revelation? And they would have known exactly what he was talking about. You offspring of vipers. Who was their father really? It was Satan himself. Now take a step back a minute here and think about what John is saying. The purveyors of the religion of human achievement, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or whatever form they take, whether it's legalistic in trying to conform to a set of rules and codes, or whether it's liberal where you can think whatever you want about God, they are both the offspring of the devil himself and not God. Those messages do not come from God himself. Satan wants nothing more than to stop people from believing in the truth. The truth that we are sinful. The truth that we do need to repent. The truth that the Messiah The king is the son of God and that if you want a relationship with God, you don't do it the pharisaical way. You don't do it like the Sadducees. You repent directly to God. You turn to God by faith and you receive Christ. You can only come to God through him and that's it. You can't do it on your own. There are legalists in our day, aren't there? 
There are liberals in our day, aren't there? It's the same thing, just wrapped up in different clothes. Where are you in your thinking? What do you think about God? What do you think about your own personal sinfulness before God? The next phrase that John gives, he calls them a brood of vipers. And then he says, who warned you of the wrath to come? Who warned you of the wrath to come? Now you noted in Acts chapter 28 verse 3, when we saw the viper latch on to Paul's hand, what was it that drove them out of the sticks? It's the heat of a fire. And if you go in, anybody who's been and traveled to any desert regions, you know that it's a dry climate. And from time to time, things will dry out. The grass will dry out. The little shrub bushes will dry out. And if a fire catches, it'll burn very quickly. And oftentimes in the desert, there would be a fire that would be started in a field or whatever. And you know what would happen to the snakes? They'd be scurrying out in front of the fire, coming out of their holes, out of their hiding places, and trying to escape the flame that was about to engulf them. This was a major indictment by John. And I want you to think about what he's saying here. Who warned you about the wrath to come? Now, what do you think he was referring to about the wrath to come? Be God's judgment. Should we fear the judgment of God? I think there's a lot of people who have convinced themselves that God is loving, God is kind, God is good, and there's not a mean bone in his body, and, and he won't judge anybody. I hear that a lot. You probably hear it too. There won't be anybody in hell because hell doesn't exist. God could not do that to anybody. Who warned you about the wrath to come? You think that they were there? You think the Pharisees and the Sadducees were there because they were concerned about the wrath of God? I don't. I don't think they were worried in their own hearts that God was going to judge them. They were beyond that. They were above that. So in essence, he's saying, what's causing you snakes to be scurrying out of your holes at this time and coming down here for safety? Why are you here? What are you doing? Why do you think they were there? It wasn't because of fear of God's judgment. The people who were repenting and were being baptized back in verse 6, that's why they were there. They had heard John's message. They understood it. They knew their own sinful tendencies. And they came there to repent. And they confessed their sins. And they were baptized. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't there. Who warned you? Maybe, maybe Satan had sent them there to try to infiltrate John's message, to try to counterfeit what John was saying, to try to counteract what John was saying and, and give them a different message. I think John recognized this and with the strongest possible language attacked them. You brood of vipers, who sent you here? Who sent you here? Third part of the sermon, the right answer. John gives them a glimpse here of the truth and what they should be doing in verse 8. Therefore, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. John finally comes to it. He plainly recognizes the phoniness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were there, not really to repent and be baptized. And he recognized that their lives bore no fruit whatsoever that would indicate that they were there to be baptized or to repent. 
what is the fruit that John's talking about? If, if somebody is truly repentant, and here in this verse he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does he mean? I'd like you to turn to Acts 26, verse 20. And here's where we can really start paying attention because if we are saved, if we have truly repented, these things will be true. They will be true of you. They will be true of me. They're true of anybody who repents. They were not true of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John recognized it and pointed it out in front of everybody. But here's something that we can look at to see whether this is the way that we really live or not. Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. Uh, We'll start at verse 19. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. John's message was the same as Jesus Christ's message. Jesus' message was the same as Paul's message. All of them were were preaching repentance for people to confess their sins, turn to God, and be saved. Paul was saying the same thing here. He says, I preached at Jerusalem, I preached in Judea, I even went outside and preached to the Gentiles. Repent and turn to God and do what? At the end of the verse. Perform deeds appropriate to repentance. This kills the whole idea of easy believism. If you want to be saved, just say a prayer. Lord, I know I've sinned. I receive you as my Savior. Amen. And then you go and you live your life exactly like you were before, thinking that you have been saved when your life does not show it at all. A person who has truly repented and been saved will have a transformed life. Can't be any other way. When God comes into the life, things change. Things that you didn't even know were going to change will change. Deeds appropriate to repentance. There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 3. I'd like you to turn there because an interesting thing happens. As John was preaching and he nails the Pharisees and the Sadducees with this statement, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, people started asking him questions. Look at chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 11. Or actually, go back up to verse 10. The multitudes were questioning him. He had just said what he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the multitudes start saying, oh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, what does that mean? In verse 10, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. And let him who has food do likewise. Then the tax gatherers, who probably had their own set of problems, asked the same question. What, what should we do? And he says, collect no more than what is due. Be honest and don't steal from people. The soldiers heard him and they asked him, In verse 14, questioning him, what about us? What should we do? And he said, don't take money from anyone by force. Don't abuse your authority. Or don't accuse anyone falsely. And be content with your your wages. Whoa. What's he talking about? He's talking about a transformed life. If you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, God will enter in and your life will change. 
then you will become more and more like Jesus Christ every day. Justice, mercy, goodness, kindness, honesty. They're all going to be a part of your life and it will be developing over, over time. The fruit that John is talking about should be befitting. It's the word he uses there in, uh, in verse 8. Bring forth fruit in keeping with. That's a word that means of the same quality, of equal weight, comparable, bear fruit that is befitting of your repentance. Pharisees and Sadducees did not have this. They lived their own life their own way, and their life was never transformed by God. True repentance is a change in heart toward God and a change in the moral conduct of life. The two go together. They cannot be separated. It's impossible. And the Jews knew this. They should have known it anyway. And I wanted, I've got a few passages. I'm only going to take you to one or two. Ezekiel chapter 33. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to Ezekiel 33. If they had read their Old Testament at all, they would have known that this was a message from the very beginning. Ezekiel 33:17 Let your fellow citizens say the way of the Lord is not right when it is their own way that is not right when the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity then he shall die in it but when the wicked turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness he will live by them repentance always accompanies accompanies a transformed life Remember in the passage that we read in Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10, what happened to the Ninevites when they were preached to? They repented in sackcloth and ashes, and they changed. They changed their lives because they were afraid of the judgment of God. Look at Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 16. Isaiah 1, 16. There are nine things listed here in this passage that accompany repentance. And of all the books, I think they probably would have been most familiar, or at least very familiar with the book of Isaiah. Verse 16, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's a changed life. That's somebody who is now completely others-oriented. They are in tune with what God wants them to do, and they're doing it. Repentance accompanies, or I should say it the other way around, a changed life accompanies repentance. So this was an indictment to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had never repented. They had never turned to God. And John was, was blasting them right here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And in fact, if you stop and think about it, this was also an invitation to them, wasn't it? He said that in the form of a command to them. Pharisees and Sadducees, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You have an opportunity right here and right now to repent, but they didn't and they wouldn't. And then lastly, he says in verse 11 or verse uh, 9, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. John was anticipating what they were going to come back with. John was nailing them because they had no life in them. They had not repented. He was exposing this in front of everybody. And probably they would have said, yeah, 
but we are Israelites. We are Abraham's children. You can't say this to us. We are resting in the fact that we are his offspring. And John says to that, before they even say it, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. In effect, he's saying, don't rely on your heritage. People do that today all the time. The family that they're brought up in, the church that they're brought up in, the country that they're brought up in. Hey, I'm a Christian. Don't tell me I'm not a Christian. Of course I'm a Christian. Everybody's a Christian here. No, not necessarily. Does the life show transformation? Is the life different? They believed that they were saved because of their Jewishness. Jesus said to them in John 8.39, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Same thing, right? If you've truly repented and you're a son of Abraham, then live like it. Do the deeds of Abraham. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded and have come from God. And another interesting thing about this, you're all familiar with Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, when they both died, the rich man ended up in Hades or hell, the, the poor man, Lazarus, ended up in Abraham's bosom. And you remember what the rich man said? He called out to, what did he call Abraham? Father. Father Abraham. And what did Abraham say back to him? My son. So here's a man in Hades, in hell, in torment, recognizing that there's a relationship. He was a son of Abraham, and Abraham was his father, and Abraham even acknowledged it, but it didn't help. That wasn't the issue. It wasn't the fact that he was a son of Abraham. He needed to have repented in his life, and he didn't. And then, lastly, John says, from these stones, look around you at all the rocks. God is able from these rocks to raise up children from Abraham. What's that mean? Is God going to send lightning down and make a rock come alive and all of a sudden be a believer? No. But think about the illustration that he's using. What were the Pharisees and Sadducees doing to their own hearts? They were hardening their hearts toward God. The message that John was preaching was just bouncing right off. It was not getting in. They had hardened themselves to the point that their hearts were just like stone. And if the Pharisees and Sadducees were going to harden their hearts and become like stones, the Gentiles around them, who were not a part of God's people, not a part of God's law, they were already like stones. God could take them and raise up sons from them if the Israel, if people in Israel were not going to repent. And even Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 8. Remember the Roman centurion who had a servant that was sick? He goes to Jesus and asks him to heal him. And Jesus you know, was, was going to go on the way to heal him, but the centurion said, no, you don't even have to come. Just say the word and I know my servant will be healed. And you remember what Jesus said about that man? I have not seen such great faith of anyone in Israel. What are you trusting in? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about salvation? Are you like the Pharisee? who is trusting in his own good works to save him? Are you trusting that you're doing enough good now that hopefully the, the divine scales are going to be balanced and your good works are going to outweigh your bad? Listen to what John said. Repent. Your good works cannot save you. Do you think like a, a Sadducee? Are you a postmodernist and you just believe that whatever people think, that's okay? I believe God's going to save me, so he is. 
No matter what I believe and no matter how I think about it. No. God is more concerned with the heart. He's more concerned with what you do with the truth. I think we should be like one of the crowd. Like those who were coming from Jerusalem and Judea and the regions around the Jordan who were there to listen to what John said, to repent, to understand that they were sinful, they needed to be washed, they needed to be cleaned, they were confessing their sins and they were being baptized. That's the way we need to be as well. John was there to introduce them to the king. And we should be here all the time to introduce people to the king. We should do it the same way. Jesus Christ loved us enough that he sacrificed himself, shed his blood, let people kill him for you and me so that our sins can be forgiven. We need to introduce people to the king. And the first step in introducing people to the king is to preach repentance. We need to repent of our sin, turn to God. Are you saved today? Have you repented of your sin? John gave us a pretty clear example of how we can know. Is your life transformed? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin? If you never have trusted in Christ for personal salvation, then I would invite you right here and right now, just as John did, repent. Repent of your sin and be saved. Jesus Christ paid for your sin. And if you trust in him, God will give to you eternal life. And you will never have to fear death again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for John the Baptist and his keen insight into the lives of people, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Lord, I pray that we would take some things home with us as we think about who they were and how they responded to the truth of God. Lord, help us to be people who are humbly responding to your truth. Lord, I pray that if there are some, even in this room now, who have never come to terms with sin in their own life, that they might be pricked in their hearts and do that even now, that they would repent, turn to you, and allow you to come in and change their lives. Lord, I thank you for so many of us who are here today who profess Christ as Savior. I pray that we would be challenged in our own minds and our own thinking about fruits that are fitting of our repentance. Lord, help us to be a testimony as John the Baptist was, proclaiming your message, being a testimony in front of our friends and family members and co-workers and leading as many as we can to the King, introducing them to the one, the only one who can save them. Father, thank you for um, your word. Pray that it would penetrate our hearts even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.